you're able, would you please stand as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What a story. 
Now, just to say this up front, we read the whole first chapter. I will mention all the verses in this chapter, but we will pick it up about verse 20 the next time in detail. You'll see why I said that later, because I probably will not answer the question that a lot of you have in the detail that you want it answered today. Our last time in 1 Samuel, we looked at those first eight verses here, which introduced to us Hannah, the barren wife of Elkanah. And we find out that Elkanah's other wife, Penina, has many children, sons and daughters. We also found out how Penina used to provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And because... Elkanah loved Hannah, despite her closed womb. Quite a dysfunctional, polygamous family. Yet even in these faithless times in which this story unfolds, Elkanah knew enough to know that he needed to regularly and faithfully worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. The constant barrage of spiteful provocation Hannah received from her rival left her deeply, deeply grieved, so much so that even at the tabernacle, the place that should be where hope would reign, Hannah finds it a place of incredible distress. Elkanah notices her distress in verse 8, and he asks her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And we mentioned last time that probably everybody in here, especially the women, were going... How could you ask this question? Do we not live in the same home? Don't you know what's going on here? Now, this could be an indication that he's like so many of us men who try to communicate our sympathy and affection to the wife we love, but in doing so, we're completely clueless as to how much we've misunderstood about what all is going on with her. That's possible. But I think there's even more evidence that Elkanah's real concern could be quite different. His real concern could be that Hannah, whom he loves, may be participating in these sacrifices with a grudging heart. Because he is aware of what's going on. In other words, he may be asking, Are you weeping and not eating and sad because your heart is so resentful that you're still barren and childless? You should not worship the Lord with a resentful heart, Hannah. Don't you know that I love you and that you mean more to me than any number of sons, even as important and vital as that is in our society. 
Now, those are two pretty good extremes about what could be going on in this question, aren't they? But we've got to leave it. Because either way, it seems that Hannah was then driven to do what? Get up, rise, and to cry out to her Lord instead of just giving up and giving in to her deep grief. And without being able to fully grab hold of it all yet, Hannah's place of being completely unable to do anything about her situation is actually what drove her to do exactly the right thing, which is what? Cry out to her Lord. That's what's important here. Now, there's a whole bunch of things we could say about this prayer. And there's at least six aspects of this prayer that are really important. And Rick Phillips especially listed these in a form that I think is really helpful. Most people, most commentators, most preachers do look at this prayer and divide it up and go, well, look what she said here and what was her attitude. But but this list, I think, was the best one. And so we're going to look at it. A warning. Just because somebody prays something that you want in the Bible does not mean that you can use that prayer as a template to get what you want like she did. And you may think I'm crazy for saying that, but some of the best-selling, quote, Christian, unquote, books in recent times have been formulaic prayers and sometimes really remote ones that people have made millions of dollars selling books saying, if you pray this, then you'll get this. That's not where we're going today because that's not how it works. So the first thing we need to notice here is that Hannah turned to her Lord in need. In her need, she turned to the Lord. And we go, well, of course. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you? Do we turn to God first when we recognize our need? Verse 10, she prayed to the Lord. Since she knew it was the Lord who closed her womb. Does this surprise you? That's what we see in verse 5 and 6. She knew it was the Lord who closed her womb. Many Christians simply turn away from God or many professing Christians turn away from God when feeling his hand of affliction. Others just resign themselves to the situation and then wonder later why their love for God has grown cold. In the New Testament, the book of James, chapter 5, verse 13 He just says, is anyone among you suffering? 
let him pray. Hannah could have given in to anger or to bitterness, which may have been what Elkanah was worried about, as we just mentioned. But she did not. She simply went to the Lord in prayer. Second thing we need to notice here is that Hannah prayed knowing who God is. Verse 11. What name does she call out? O Lord of hosts. And we learned last time that this means Lord Almighty. The one who commands and rules with omnipotent power over all earthly and heavenly rulers, powers, whatever. How appropriate. Hannah honored God. She ascribed to him all the power that she needed. Those dots connected. Now, think about this. Hannah knew the Exodus story, so she knew that the Lord told Moses this in Exodus 3, 7 and chapter 4. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Now, we read that and we think, oh, immediately he answered. Um, It was a long time that those people suffered under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. It wasn't an immediate get me out of this right now. Hannah knew God. And she asked God to do what he had shown to be his past behavior towards his people. Third thing we need to notice is that Hannah prayed knowing who she was. Verse 11, we find that she knows she is God's humble servant. She did not come before the Lord demanding or complaining or shouting about her rights, but instead came with a humble request. She did not come asking vengeance upon Penina, but instead recognize that asking God for mercy and then in the very next breath for vengeance doesn't mix very well. She did not come expecting all of her problems to be completely wiped away, but instead she had no illusions that the state of the world she lived in was a sinful one. And when you recognize that, 
You don't give in to everything, but you don't demand rights either. God, give me what I want, or I'm going to take my marbles home and play by myself. And we adults laugh at that, but we do that all the time. If he does not give us exactly what we want, when we want it, how we want it given. The fourth thing we see here is that Hannah prayed knowing what she wanted and wasn't afraid to ask for it. Verse 11, if you will, see that, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. And what is she talking about there? Obviously, the stigma of being barren in that culture, but also this I mean, it was World War III in this home. Constant abuse from the other woman. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now it is true that our prayer should consist of more than just the list of things we want. The little acronym that we always use, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Supplications last. And we need to remember adoration, confession, thanksgiving. But we also must realize that God invites us to make requests of him, and he and it honors him when we do so. Because we're recognizing that we can't bring this about on our own strength, that who we are, it makes it, makes it real, that he's the one that moves people's hearts. He's the one that created everything that we see the world, us included, and that honors him as we ascribe that to him. It's true of him. James 4, last part of verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. Now, I bet you every, I bet everybody in here has heard some kind of message or seen a book about that little part of that verse, right? But there's something right after this. But what else do we notice here? What's after this? Well, there was no magic formula or guaranteed technique. And don't be duped by the people who tell you there is. Because James reveals something here in just a second. Hannah was able to pray confidently because she knew the God to whom she prayed, including his attributes, his promises, and his saving deeds. Hannah went to God knowing what she wanted to ask, knowing what she wanted to ask. And then she asked humbly and very clearly, did she not? But this fifth thing, 
that we need to notice that's hooked into this one is vital. She prayed with a view to God's will. What does that mean? This was not an attempt to bargain with God. The verse we just read from James 4, the end of verse 2, in the very next verse, James 4, verse 3, he gets on his readers for having the wrong motives when they ask. He writes in James 4, verse 3, You ask and do not receive for having, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passion. And that can be anything from material things to position, power, fame, glory for your children. It could, it could be anything. Hannah knew that her motives in prayer were right. In other words, she prayed with a view to God's will. So we need to ask, well, how do we know that? Well, in 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, it starts out by telling us that Hannah was making a vow. And then at the end of verse 11, she tells the Lord that she would give back to him this son that she asked for, quote, for all the days of his life and no razor razor shall touch his head. Now, what kind of a vow is this? This is a reference to the rites of a Nazarite vow, which is described in Numbers chapter 6, a very specific vow, which means that someone, it's someone who has vowed to be totally separate to the service of the Lord. But usually we see in the Old Testament that this was only for a specific period of time. Well, she blows that door wide open because what does she say? But she also goes so far beyond that desire that she has because she says if God does give her a son, he would not be hers but God's for his whole life. So she was not merely bargaining with God. If you give me this, I'll give you that. That's what the pagans did. That's what pagans still do, even if they call themselves Christians. The whole tone here is completely different. It's one of holy motives. It's holy desires and humble submission. What would Hannah be sacrificing as a mother, if God did open her womb and she had a child. We could ask the mothers in here to stand up and tell you. Parenting. The joys. The trials. The status, especially in this culture, if it was a son the status that that would bring to her. You can go on and on and on and on here with that list. So what did Hannah really want? 
Is it so foreign to our mindset that we can't even conceive of this? What did she really want? She wanted a child to offer to the Lord whom she loved and recognized and knew. She wanted to play her role in God's plan of salvation and she was zealous to play a most meaningful role to bear a lifelong Nazarite who would wholeheartedly serve the Lord. Let that sink in for just a second. This son would be devoted to God's purposes in one of the darkest times of Israel's history that God himself describes as faithless times, full of idolatry. Good grief, the tabernacle that they were at when all this is taking place. The high priest there, Eli, had two sons who spent most of their time drunk and having sex with women in the temple grounds. Which we're going to find out about. And it's elsewhere. These are dark times. And she's asking for a child that God himself would use to stand up for him in those times. And that ought to just rack us. Because we're on the cliff looking over it at similar times a coming. And our first thought is, I don't know whether I want my grandkids growing up like this. What are they going to face? Right? God knows. And he's raising up some people that will be standing for him. That's, That's one of our main purposes here. To recognize that. To pray for that. So if you're thinking those things, we've got a kindred spirit here in the Old Testament. This gal is something else. So the question is, this doesn't mean that I'm asking if you're If God blesses you with a child, that you'll let him grow his hair out, never cut it off, and he'll be a Nazarite. That's not going on anymore, okay? We've got to get a little more general than that. What we're asking is, for the parents or future parents, is your chief desire for your children that they would be fully committed to the Lord and useful to his kingdom? Because that just about covers everything. And some will be and some won't. But is that what we're desiring? Is that what we're asking? The sixth thing we can observe here about this prayer is that Hannah genuinely opened her heart to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were this torn apart 
how many of us would expose ourselves, even our best friends, in that state? In verse 15, Hannah tells Eli, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Many Christians, probably a whole lot of us, we need to realize that Yahweh, our God, allows us to do this. To pour our griefs and sobs and perplexities at his feet. You know what? Let's put it this way. Our Lord can handle our tears. And we insult him if we think that we've got to make ourselves a certain way in order to pour our hearts before him. What we're really saying is, you can't handle this. I've got to, like he doesn't know. He knows. He cares. Our Lord can handle our tears, and it won't make him nervous or ill at ease if you unload your distress at his feet. And in verse 12, we read, Hannah continued praying before the Lord. See, she was speaking in her heart. Uh, Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. You know, David prayed in Psalm 142, verse 2, I pour out. I lo- don't you like that? I pour, I pour it out. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Do you. So what have we seen here? Hannah turned to the Lord in prayer. She prayed knowing who God is. She prayed knowing who she was. She prayed knowing what she wanted and wasn't afraid to ask him. She prayed with a view to God's will. She genuinely opened her heart to the Lord. Let's step back and ask one more question. You know her. You know she's barren. You have a pretty pretty good relationship with her and you know she loves her God even in the midst of this horrible dark time remember this was this was the end of the period of the judges Samuel is going to be considered the last judge and you remember how that book ended every man did what was right in his own eyes what does that sound like And she wants a son to raise in that culture. Is that a selfish motive? Or does she so want God's glory that she's praying for a son who will stand up for him? This is heavy. It's great. It's why this story is so compelling. 
We're seeing God's redemptive plan unfold through the, some of the most spectacular events in history. And yet, it's happening in one little family with some ordinary people, but somebody whose heart is sold out to the Lord. And that's the way he works. Now, we get to switch gears. This is a book of contrast. I mean, it goes from one extreme to the other. Enter Eli. Verse 9. Eli, the high priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, watching. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So this is our introduction to Eli, even though he's, he was introduced in verse 3. And we'll see as we go along that once again, Scripture provides us with this ironic role reversal kind of thing. This will be especially clear when we get to the contrast of the sons of Eli with Hannah's son-to-be. But for now, the development to watch is which person, Hannah or Eli, is closest to God. One may observe this, quote, If Israel had a leader who could, tell, who could not tell the difference between a godly woman's heartfelt prayer and drunken rambling, no wonder Israel had a leadership crisis. Hannah defended herself when questioned. The worthless woman Eli thinks she is would be the woman that would foolishly drown her sorrows with strong drink. But Hannah had bathed her sorrows in what? Prayerful tears. The lack of spiritual discernment and sensitivity here by Eli should again alert us to something. The fact of Israel's dreadful spiritual condition, including his own. Why? Because evidently Eli's accusation was born, it came out of too much observed behavior of exactly what he said. Think about that. People in drunken revelry in the tabernacle worshiping. Quote, unquote. After hearing Hannah's retort, Eli, who still was vested with this responsibility before God, finally seized the truth and gave her a priestly benediction. And what was it? Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Did she have a reason to hope hearing that? 
we would say, well, no, that guy was, I mean, look at his sons. He couldn't possibly be the real thing. He still was in the position. And he saw something, and she took it to heart. Then we read in verses 18 through 20. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. Look what she did. She ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and what? Worshipped the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. His name means God hears, basically. When Eli ended his benediction upon Hannah, he said, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And because he was the high priest, it was right for Hannah to take his words as more than wishing her well. This was not a, hey, see you next year kind of, kind of benediction. This was specific. And we then see Hannah changed because she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Now let's ask this. Why pray if God is sovereign and has everything decided in advance? This is the question you hear. This is the question every person in here who has come to see sovereignty of God clearer and the majesty of it, this is everybody's question. Because God's sovereign will is usually achieved through the acts of men and women, especially of our prayers. He doesn't just arbitrarily do stuff and not include his people as a part of it. Hannah turned to the Lord in prayer as she did that turning. Well, it'll turn out to change not only her life, but the life of the nation. And indeed, the history of the world. Sorry, but that was kind of appropriate there. The history of the world. Faith in God, therefore, leads us in our troubles to pray to the God who is sovereign over all things. Back in verse 11, when Hannah asked God to remember her, this does not mean that he'd forgotten. That's how we use the word. Or that he was too busy or asleep at the wheel. It does mean that God was this, mindful of her prayers and ordered events to work in blessing her and carrying out his sovereign will. That's how he had it worked out anyway, to use her in her trouble to pray. This same word is used in Genesis 1.8, when God remembered Noah after the flood, meaning that God kept his covenant promise and made sure to save Noah. That's what it means. It refers to God's faithfulness in hearing 
the prayers and in meeting the needs of his people. And the peace that we finally see Hannah demonstrating here in verses 18 and 19 ultimately comes, ultimately comes from knowing that God does hear his people's prayers and the confidence that he knows best how to answer them. Do we find our peace in waiting on the Lord? Finding his mercy and grace in that waiting? Or we, do we depart and have one big idolatrous pity party until we think he's going to give us what we ask for? It's a big question. The whole story builds up to God raising up Samuel for a very specific purpose in carrying out his redemptive plan, doesn't it? But we must not try to use this example to say that every woman's prayer for a child will be answered in this specific way. His plan for some may look quite different, and we all know those whose plan it looks like so far is different. And God's plan is always plan A for his glory and for his purpose. Let's pray as as we get ready to partake of the Lord's table and we put into context here Um, This meal, as we see the provision of God's redemptive plan in Christ Jesus, his son, actually coming, after we've looked back here in the Old Testament and seen another little thing getting ready to happen that's not little at all because it's working out to actually bring Christ here to do the work that we all need to have done to save our souls. Oh, God. We thank you for um, the way you lay out your truth, your word, the truth about who you are, who we are, and how your, your plan just unfolds all through the Old Testament, and we see it come to fruition in Christ, and we know that we have the completion to look forward to. We thank you for connecting these dots We thank you that you're the one who made the plan, and because that is true, uh, we know every part of it will come to fruition. God, we also know that we don't know all the details, and we thank you for working through your people in these different ways in different means to see how you raise a people that belong to you because of faith in your provision of a Savior. And God, we ask that you'd help us understand how we fit into that uh, to give us answers for why we're here in, in the 21st century and what part we have to play and 
how we can take our fears to you about our current situation and where we see ourselves going and what about future generations and we can give a deep breath and know that you have all this in your hand you will raise up the people you need people for yourself and you will use us in that process as we pray as we love learn as we grow as we humble ourselves thank you that as we take this meal together that the elements point to your work completed in Christ and we just ask and we we thank you for the unity that we have being joined together in Christ himself and we ask that uh, we would realize that he's the reason that we're that we're living give us that perspective we ask in Christ's name Amen. Would our men please come forward?